Well, good evening to everyone. Are you glad you're here? You're the, you're the Wednesday night crowd, man. That's like, you know, there's one thing about Wednesday nights. It's like, man, you really wouldn't be here if you didn't want to be here, probably. You know, Sunday morning, sometimes the Sunday morning crowd, you've got to select probably percentage of a Sunday morning group that are here because you do the Sunday morning thing, get it off the, get it off the list of the week. But Wednesday night, it's a whole different atmosphere. You're here because you're, you're hungry and you desire to experience the Lord, and, and I am just um, honored and privileged to get to experience Him with you. Well, you notice I, my name is not Jeff Lyle, right? I am not the mighty fighting Irish. I'm the, I'm the, the white European dude, but um, here, so glad that you're here. If I don't know you and you're a guest, we welcome you. My name is Dustin Pennington, one of our, one of our lead pastors here, so, so glad that you're here. If you're here as a guest and you don't know anything about this, there's a little box on, on the back wall with some visitor cards. You can fill it at, drop it in, and we can let you know about who we are. There's also a place to put your like $10,000 check in the box as well. Um, so, so absolutely take advantage of that. So in thinking and preparing for tonight, Jeff had, a, had to have a little medical procedure done. So he's, he's home recovering from that. So I get this um, opportunity. But you're in the middle of a study of David. So I figured, man, if we're, if we're studying David, we need to do something just different. Like, let's get in the book of Leviticus. Come on, right? The book of Leviticus. Can we just do that tonight? Can we really just dive into the book of Leviticus? It is not the book of Leviticus, God's word. You know, it's not typically one of those books you find on the little bedside tables and the Bible promise books and all that. But there's some really good stuff in the book of Leviticus. And we're going to visit that a little bit tonight. I want to share with you on the thought of tending the fire. Tending the fire. I don't have notes, but if you have the capacity to get online, you can go to mynewbridge.church, scroll down, click on message notes, and all the notes are right there. So you don't have to feel the pressure. If I were to say something um, worth writing down, you don't have to do that. You can, you can find it online so you can pay attention, but it's right there for you, mynewbridge.church, scroll down. We're going to talk about tending the fire. And, and before we do that, you know, self-examination is really important, isn't it? Self-examination. Do you know you really do this every day on a regular basis physically? How many of you in the morning look in the mirror? Right? We have, uh, when you go to, to your bathroom, you probably have a mirror in your bathroom. You may have more than one mirror in your bathroom. You may have one over the sink and on the wall you may have like a full-length mirror. So you're not only going to examine your face, you're going to actually examine your entire body. Now, some of you women, like my wife, have this frightening mirror that's also in the bathroom that magnifies things 10 and 50 and like 100 times. Have you ever looked in one of those mirrors? You just think you look good until you look in that mirror. And your, body, and your face looks like the Grand Canyon. You know, crevices and valleys and all that. But all that to say, we really do are used to very much physically examining ourselves. We put our makeup on, we put the clothes on, then we stand right back in front of the mirror and we like make sure everything, all the buttons, or you don't have your button kind of sort of cockeyed and jacked up. You make sure you are presentable to go out in the world because people are going to be looking at you. So you're going to look good. If you ride down the road, you see some women that are putting their makeup on as they're driving, right? We've all like, we've all like seen that. We've all seen the guy that's, you know, really working hard, picking his nose while he's going down the road. Ever seen that, like, unpleasant thought, 
right? Or that unpleasant thing. So we're, we are always and constantly examining ourselves on the outside. And, and, and that's just a type and a shadow of what we should be doing on the inside, right? Really examining what's happening in our spirit. Because in truth, that's the part of us that's going to live forever. That's the part of us that's going to affect our daily life every single day much more than this stuff. But we give this stuff a lot of attention, and that's okay, but are we giving our, our spirit man the same kind of attention? So we need to take a moment and say, Lord, we want to examine ourselves. You know, man seeks a spotlight, but God desires to get us under the searchlight. Not to condemn us or to shame us, but to show us some things so we can address some things. So I want to share with you, so if you, if you I have your Bible, like you said, we're going to be primarily in the book of Leviticus. But let's start in Luke chapter 11, verse 35. Jesus kind of shoots a shot across the bow, um, and he gives us a warning. Luke eleven thirty-five through 36. Jesus says, make sure that the light you think you have is not really darkness. Now just think about that for a second. Make sure that the light you think you have is not really darkness. If you are filled with light with no dark corners, everybody say no dark corners. With no dark corners, then your whole life will be radiant as though a floodlight is shining on you. So Jesus is helping us see something here that there is a dynamic that exists of how our very faith can be hijacked by the flesh or by the enemy and we still think we are walking in the light. This is a tendency that can happen without regular self-examination and reflection. We have to actively evaluate our own selves so we don't become an, an unwilling, a, a unwitting pawn for the enemy and also the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life, right? we got to always be examining ourselves. And one of the ways that we do this is by making sure we tend the fire of God inside of us accurately and deal with all the dark corners. How many of you think you got dark corners in your, in, your, in your life? We all got some, we all got some dark corners that need to be dealt with, that need to get exposed to the light. We find out in Jewish tradition that the Passover, in preparing for the Passover, it was important for them to get what out of the house? Remember? The leaven. We got to get all the yeast out of the house. Because a little leaven leavens the whole lump, doesn't it? So we don't want to be casual or careless about the dark corners in our life. We need to go after every area effectively. You know, sometimes in our own life, you know, we think we can, we can have a little dark area or we can like make excuses or we can compensate. And it's, and it's like, it's like trying to hold it. It's like holding on to a grenade, right? We actually think we can hold on to a grenade. We can pull the pin. We can throw the pin away and we can just like hold it and we can control it. And never let go. Because what happens if you let go of a grenade? It's going to explode, isn't it? But we deceive ourselves to think, oh, I can, I can control this. I can hold on to this. This is going to be okay. I can manage this. 
I can enter into a diplomatic relationship with the dark corner of my life and make sure it only stays in the corner. But guess what happens? How long can anybody hold on to something? What, what ultimately happens? You get tired and you get weak and you begin to let go. And ultimately, the grenade explodes and it's going to obviously you know, mess you up and there's going to be a lot of collateral damage around you. So Jesus is warning us, right, that it's possible to think you're in the light and think you're doing well, but you're not really doing well. Examine yourself in the light of truth. So we need to pursue light. So going then to Leviticus chapter 6 and verse 8. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. Third book in the Torah, in the books of Moses, in the book of the law. Now, anytime you approach the Old Testament, how many of you can honestly say you're a little intimidated by the Old Testament? There's a lot in there, a lot of things that don't make a lot of sense sometimes, and it's, and it's, and it's really, sometimes it's kind of scary. And, but let me encourage you, don't, never be scared of the, of the Old Testament. But when we as new covenant people begin to study the Old Testament, you want to study it through the lens of the New Testament. It's like putting on a pair of sunglasses that are, that are red, tinted red because of the blood of Jesus. So we interpret everything in the Old Testament through the lens of, the, of a New Testament reality. Make sense? You never want to interpret the Old Testament without looking at it through the person of Jesus. Because we want to find Jesus in the Old Testament, and Jesus is everywhere in the Old Testament. If you're looking for him, you're going to absolutely find him, and then you're going to get great spiritual truths that you're going to extract out of the Old Testament when you're really looking for Jesus, because he shows up in some really unlikely places, even in the Old Testament. So Leviticus chapter 6 and verse 8, and let's just, let's just pray and just ask the Lord to help us. Father, thank you tonight. God, thank you tonight, Lord. Thank you for your powerful word. Lord, we, we cannot live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from your mouth. Father, Lord, we are not here to gain information. We are not here to be able to gain a bunch of Bible knowledge that we can win trivia pursuit. Father, we need to know you. We need a spirit, Ephesians 1.17, a spirit of wisdom and revelation, Lord, in the knowledge of God. Lord, that the eyes of our heart would be really open to hear what you are saying, that we would hear your words, we would appropriate them in such a way, God, that we would live a life where we tend the fire of God in our own hearts. So help us in these next few moments to hear what you're saying. Lord, somehow, in some miraculous way, Lord, use my voice, Lord, to be an echo of your voice, Lord. Help us tonight hear from you. Help me hear from you. Even help me hear from you through my own words, Lord. We need to hear from you. We need the revelation of the Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit. We just, it's unacceptable, Lord, just to go through the motions. God, we want to hear from you. Help us, Jesus. Amen. So Leviticus chapter 6, verse number 8. I'm going to read just um, a few verses for us, and then we'll unpack these verses. The Lord said to Moses, give Aaron and his sons this command. These are the regulations for the burnt offering. The burnt offering is to remain on the altar hearth throughout the night till morning, and the fire must 
be kept burning. Everybody say that. And the fire must be kept burning on the altar. The priest shall then put on his linen clothes with linen undergarments next to his body and shall remove the ashes of the burnt offering that the fire has consumed on the altar and place them beside the altar. Then he is to take off the clothes and put on others and carry the ashes outside the camp to place to a place that is ceremonially clean. The fire on the altar, everybody says, the fire on the altar must be kept burning. It must not go out. Every morning, the priest is to add firewood and arrange the burnt offering on the fire and burn the fat of the fellowship offerings on it. Again, verse 13, the fire must be kept burning on the altar continuously. It must not go out. Do you like hear a little bit of redundancy here? Just in that simple reading, what do we know about the fire? It must not go out, right? The job of the priest emphasized three, if not four times in this particular passage, the priest's job was to make sure the fire doesn't go out. Now, immediately, if we use our hermeneutic that we're going to interpret the Old Testament in light of the New Testament, when I read this passage with the New Testament lens and I see the word priest, what should I be seeing immediately? Who, 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 who are the priests now? I'm the priest. We, we are a holy priesthood, right? So, therefore, the duties of these priests become the same duties that I have and that you have. And the temple where the fire is, what is the New Testament reality of that temple? Where is that temple? In us, 1 Corinthians 3, Paul says, know you not, you are the what? Temple of the Holy Spirit. So I'm not trying to go out there and build a fire. What's the location of the fire? It's inside of us. Now here's the good news and the sobering news. The good news is this. Our job is not to create fire. So you don't have to worry about that part. You don't have ever watched Survivor in one of the last competitions on Survivor. What do they have to do? They got to make fire, don't they? That's a, man, I tell you what, if, if I had to make fire to survive, I would probably die. Because that's not, a, that's not a very easy thing to do to make fire. We can't create fire. God is the one who makes the fire and puts the fire inside of us. So that's the good news. You don't have to make fire. You don't have to sit in the corner and rub your fingers together. I'm trying to make fire. God. No, God makes the fire. That's the good news. The sobering news is it's our responsibility to tend the fire and determine how big and powerful the fire gets. It's up to us whether it stays a flicker or whether it is a roaring inferno is entirely up to us. God makes it. We're responsible to tend it. And if we don't do anything to tend the fire, what's going to happen to the fire? It's going to like, I don't think it's going to go out because the Holy Spirit stays inside us, but what's going to happen? It's going to like shrink down to like just, the, just one lit match and it's not going to be a fire. So we have to, we have to tend the fire, but most of us don't know what it's like to even tend fires. How many of you, uh, when you grew up or maybe even today, grew up with a um, um, wood-burning stove? Anybody ever, ever had like a wood-burning stove? Um, how many of you had a wood-burning stove that was your primary um, heat and cooking? That like you could, that it wasn't just kind of, wasn't just kind of decorative. It was like the source. Anybody in the room? 
right? So you know, so most of us don't know what it's like to, to have to live like that. And so if you have a wood-burning stove, what do you have to do? You got to keep the thing burning, right? And they're helpful. They can cut back on your fuel bill, but they require lots of time and attention. Now, most of us, we just don't need a wood-burning stove. What do we do? We go to the thermostat, we flip it on, we go to bed, and all is well in the universe. Or we go to the stove and we push the button. So sort of, you know, in our modern culture, we've lost the sense of what it means to actually tend the fire and keep it burning because it can be a life and death situation to make sure the fire stays burning. In the tabernacle, it was absolutely the responsibility of the priest to keep this fire going, and it's ours as well. So each of us have a fire in us that we need to keep burning. And I want to share with you just in this passage in Leviticus three principles, very simple but powerful principles on how we can tend the fire in our own life and do a really good job at it. Because if we're not intentional about it, again, what's going to happen? It's going to be reduced to a flicker. And it's not going to put off near the light, near the heat, or the radiance that it needs to. How we end up with dark corners in our hearts is because there's not enough light that's reaching the dark corner. It's dark because there's no light reaching it. Think about that. You know, dark is not, you know, you know dark it doesn't even exist, right? What is dark? Dark is the absence of light. Dark has no atomic structure. Actually, you can say dark doesn't even exist in the laws of physics and science. There's no such thing as dark, but there is such thing as light. Light has atomic structure. It's called photons. They actually exist, but dark doesn't exist. So the enemy then operates in a realm that really doesn't even exist. He operates in areas where there is the absence of light. He creates a false reality that's built up on lies, and it's a house of cards that doesn't exist. So when it is exposed to the light, it's not that darkness has to leave. It's that darkness doesn't even exist. It's all lie. It's all fake. So Satan operates off of lying and deception and darkness. Therefore, it really isn't even a contest, isn't it? When we talk about light is battling darkness, there's no battle to it. Because dark has nothing to fight with. Because it doesn't even really exist. Because light comes in. And darkness ceases to even exist because it never existed to begin with. Ever thought about that? It's the same with um, heat and cold. Cold doesn't exist either. Only heat exists. You can't measure cold. All you can measure is heat. Heat exists. Cold doesn't. Now, you're cold, but you're not feeling cold. What you're feeling is the absence of heat. You're feeling less heat. So when we increase the light inside of us, it's going to expose the dark corners and we're going to find ourselves walking in way more victory than you're going to if you only have like a flicker in the living room and it's not pervading every other area. So it's critical for us to develop the skill and the intentionality how to take what God has ignited inside of us and grow it. So the first principle, and we find this repeated three, four times in this passage, to, to keep the fire burning. It sounds obvious, but keep the fire burning. It was the demand for perpetual fire upon the altar, which shows that God wants us to worship him with consistent devotion and not sporadic enthusiasm. There's a difference in what? 
committed devotion, and sporadic enthusiasm. A distinction between a mature Christian and an immature Christian can be seen right here. An immature, an immature Christian will oftentimes worship out of a sporadic enthusiasm and not a consistent devotion. What does that mean? That if, if we only worship God when we feel like it, it's really not worship. If we only worship God when we feel like it, it really isn't true, authentic worship. Sometimes we worship God. Our worship of God depends on whether or not we like the worship song we're listening to. Are we guilty of that? I can be guilty of that. I don't like that song. I like that song. Now, what is that called? <laughs> it's called, it's called sporadic enthusiasm. That's called my worship of God is dictated by my personal preference. And that is sadly an indicator of a dark corner of immaturity in all of our life. Do you know a good test for you, test for me? Worship God with no music playing. I mean, really try it. Try like to turn the music off for a little while. And well, I'm just going to worship you with the Bible and me, and that's it. I'm not, a, I'm not against music, but it's actually kind of healthy to, to do that because music can be a trigger for us. But if Romans 12 is true, right? You know what Romans 12 one says? Therefore, you know, offer your bodies as living sacrifices. This is your what? Spiritual act of worship. Worship literally means to ascribe worth to something. So if I'm going to worship something, I'm ascribing worth to it. So in a sense, I could say I worship my wife, right? And I really do in a kind of way because I'm going to ascribe worth to her. Anything we ascribe worth to means we worship it at some different level. Some people worship their car. They do. You know how? Because they worship it because they ascribe worth to it. They pay a lot of money for it. They vacuum it once a day. They wash it twice, twice a week. They wax it. They honor it. They cherish it. And God forbid if you leave a cookie crumb in it. And I used to be that way, but then kids sort of force you to have to let go a little bit. Right? Worship is ascribing worth to something. So when we worship God, we offer our bodies as what? Living sacrifices. So what does that mean? Now we go back into the Old Testament, and it becomes our lens to understanding the New Testament. So that thing works both ways. So we talked about what happens in a sacrifice. It, it, like fire's involved. Burning's involved. What's being burned in a, in a sacrifice? Flesh. Does anybody have some flesh? Does anybody like to get burned? Isn't that terrible to get burned? It's like the worst feeling in the world when you touch something you're not expecting and you get burned and you immediately, our flesh does not like to experience burning, but yet we are called to offer our bodies as living sacrifices, is our spiritual act of worship, and that immediately conveys to me there's something in my flesh that's not going to want to do it. It can't be prompted by feelings or a particular song that we may or we may not like. It's just how the whole thing works. So worship is way beyond music because music is powerful it can open the door for us and it can it can help us to enter into worship but just because it's music doesn't mean you're worshiping listen my wife and I a few years ago took her um we're um she's she's a big Neil Diamond fan 
God bless his heart. Rest in peace, Neil Diamond. But, um, but, we, but we went to his last concert in Atlanta. Man, you talk about a dude. I mean, Neil, who knows who Neil Diamond is or was? God bless his heart. Neil Diamond. All right. I mean, that, I mean, literally, Phillips Arena, and now it's called something else, but the arena, State Farm Arena, was like packed wall-to-wall people. There was everybody from like 17-year-olds to 90-year-olds in the room listening to this 80-year-old man, you know, sweet Carolina kind of thing. And I mean, it created an emotional response out of everybody. Now, all you would have had to have done was kind of edited the music a little bit, and you might have thought you were in a worship service. Because people's hands were up. They were clapping, they were rocking, and they were dancing. If you, if you didn't know better, you would think you were in church. So there's got to be more to worship than good music, hands up, and swaying. Right? That may be part of it, but that's not the full extent of it. It is a sacrificial thing that's not built on feelings. We like feelings. How many of you are married in the room? All right, so good. So this, this illustration hopefully will work for us, right? How many of you can think back to a time when you were in love? I mean, in love. Who? I mean, man, for me, it's been 30 years ago. 30 years ago. But I remember feeling in love. That's a powerful feeling. Do you remember? Can you think that far back? Yeah, look at the wrinkled guy next to you and remember what? <laughs> That's right. Yeah, remember, I mean, man, I remember those like first few months, right, of just being absolutely enamored with my wife, Michelle. I mean, I ate her, I breathed her, I lived her. Every waking moment, I was thinking about her. Back in the day, you would go to bed holding the phone, you know, you like go to sleep on the phone and then on the other end. And, you know, and I, and I, I like, honey, you there? She, she's like, oh, she's snoring because she went to sleep holding the phone. I mean, and you just can't wait to be with him continually. I mean, it is an intoxicating feeling. And it is a wonderful feeling. And it should be celebrated. But it is a feeling nonetheless. It's not a sustainable feeling. No feeling can be relied upon to last in its full intensity or to even really last at all. But yet how many of our decisions and choices that we make so often come out of a feeling? That we are reacting out of an emotional state or something we're feeling and we react out of that. You see, knowledge can last, habits can last, principles can last, but feelings come and go. Now here's the good news. Ceasing to be in love does not mean ceasing to love. You learn this. Ceasing being in love does not mean you cease to love. Because when the feelings come and go, there's something else that remains. Let me give you something one of my heroes writes here. C.S. Lewis says this. It is a deep unity. Talk about marriage here, relationships. It is a deep unity maintained by the will and deliberately strengthened by habit, reinforced by the grace which both partners ask and receive from God. Being in love first moved them to promise fidelity. This quieter love enables them to keep the promise. It is on this love that the engine of marriage is run. Being in love was the explosion that started it all. I thought just great. I love C.S. Lewis. 
So being in love is a powerful feeling, but feelings does not sustain anything for very long. They're great when they're on, but you don't want to depend on them. Your feelings are fair weather friends. Therefore, when we talk about then tending the fire inside of us, it can't be built on what I feel like doing. It has to be the same instructions that Moses, God was giving Moses to the priest. It said the fire must be kept burning. Whether you feel like it or not, it can't go out. And there's some duty and there's some responsibility and there's some habits that must be in place for that to do it. Right? Good habits is not legalism. Duty is not legalism. There are certain things that we just have to do to maintain this place that God has called us to maintain. So Romans 12 goes on to say in verse 11, Paul gives this challenge. He says, never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. So he's, he's, he's actually giving us some instruction. Don't be lacking in zeal, but keep, K-E-E-P, keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. So whose responsibility in? Whose responsibility is it to, to keep your fervor? It's my job to make sure I keep my fervor in serving the Lord. Fervor is the word zeo, which means to boil water in the Greek. That's what it means. Fervor literally means to boil something, specifically to boil water. So if I'm going to boil water, where am I going to put the water? On the fire, right? If the water is not on the fire, is it going to boil? Of course not. And nobody likes, you know, I don't like lukewarm coffee or, you know, lukewarm hot tea. Anybody like that? I like my coffee really hot. Who likes hot coffee? Some of you, some of you like to just drink this like room temperature coffee. I mean, I probably, in one cup of coffee equals four trips to the microwave. Anybody like that? If I, if, if I, usually I'm, I'm back before the microwave because I'm gonna, I want to heat that sucker up four or five times because I like to drink hot coffee. Therefore, I got to get off my rear end and I got to go to the microwave and I got to heat it up because I want to keep it hot. So when we keep the fire burning, it means it's going to take some effort, some things I must do to make sure I'm keeping the fire going. Now, there are tools that we get to do this. So the question becomes then, how do we keep the fire going? What's the, what's the mechanisms that we have? I know what to do with water. That's kind of easy, right? I fill the pot up and I go to the stove and I turn it on, I put it on that and I make hot water. Pretty uncomplicated. So spiritually speaking, we have the same things. We call them means of grace. Means of grace. The things we can do to make sure our spiritual fervor is hot to maintain a, a solid spiritual life, right? There are means to grace for spiritual life. And guess what? There's also means to life in the physical as well. Some things that you gotta do to stay alive. For example, um, what are some things that you have to do to stay alive? Can, do you gotta eat, right? Yeah, you gotta eat, that's like a means of life. You gotta eat, what else? You gotta, you gotta, you gotta breathe, you gotta, you gotta sleep, you gotta, you gotta drink, you got to exercise, which means you got to move, right? These are things that, that are absolute requirements for you to live physically. So doesn't it make sense then there are the same kind of things that you also have to do to live spiritually. If you cease to eat or you don't eat well, you're going to get what? Unhealthy. 
If you don't drink enough, if you don't stay hydrated, what's going to happen? You're going to have an array of problems from dehydration. If you don't exercise, what's going to happen? Well, something just look in the mirror, right? That's what, that's, what, that's what can happen, right? I mean, so all these things that we have to do to stay healthy. So in the Word, we have these means of grace, these things that we can do to promote spiritual fervor in us to keep the fire burning. And they're very simple. We, I mean, we know them from Sunday school. You got to do what? You got to be in fellowship with other people. You got to be around other believers. You can't forsake the assembling of yourselves together. It's important that we as believers stay connected with each other. As I talk to people, and I have for the last 25 years in ministry, I realize one of the biggest mistakes that Christians make is not that they're not reading the Bible enough or that they're praying enough and, or that they're singing enough and all this. One of, the, one of the typical mistakes is they're not connected to the body. So you watch these National Geographic specials, you know, these, these you know, herd of wildebeest on the African Serengeti, right? These massive herds. But yet on, on the same plain, the same Serengeti, there are, there are lions and, and there are tiger, t- tigers and there are cheetahs and, and there are leopards and there are, and there are hyenas. And, and, they're, and they're hunting these wildebeest. And if you watch these National Geographic specials, which ones do they always get? The ones that are like what? On the, on the outer, outer rim. Or maybe they've hung back. To, you know, check out a little water or playing with a bug or, you know, goofing off. And man, bam, our, the, the devil's like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And the problem is once you hear the roar, it's too late. It's not like the roar is going to give you a warning signal. Once the lion roars, you're already in his mouth. It's too late to respond. So therefore, one of the means of grace that we don't oftentimes think about how we keep the fire going is that we must stay connected with each other. Therefore, you've got to imagine yourself, I'm going to be that wildebeest that I'm going to tuck my head in and I'm going to go right into the herd and I'm going to go right to the middle. Right in the middle of the family of God. That's what we've got to do. And if we don't, if we stay on the outer edges, the enemy is going to just devour us continually until we get in the protection of the herd. Whose responsibility then is it to get in the middle of the herd? Oh, no, it's the pastor's job. It's the elder's job. It's John Piper's job. No, no, it actually is my responsibility, right, to make sure I'm adequately connected inside the herd in relationship with others, right? Churches spend far too much time trying to entice people to connect. No, we just need to say it's your responsibility to connect, so tuck it in and go right to the middle. Because we have to or we're not going to survive. It's a means of grace by staying in fellowship with each other because we have a responsibility to fan the flame of God in each other, to stoke the flame of God in each other, to provoke each other to greater works, right? To weep when we weep and, and rejoice when one's re- one rejoices. And I promise you two hours on a Sunday morning, that's not going to happen. It just isn't. We've got to be intentional. That's one way we keep the fire going. All these means of grace. There's, there's, there's prayer. I mean, we, we had this thing around the corner called a prayer room, 24-7, nine-day prayer, right? That we, we, we have to intentionally connect ourselves with God through the place of prayer, talking to him, being intimate with him. That knowing God is not just about getting God to do things for you. It's about knowing who he is. And you find out as you begin to mature in the Lord, you find out your conversations with God are less about getting him to do things for you and more about, Lord, I just want to know you more. 
One of the great ways to gauge your own Christian maturity and do some self-awareness, what percentage of your prayer time is trying to get God to do something for you versus God, I just want to know you. You see, that's what happens when we, when we stay in the place of prayer, studying the word. Yes, fasting is <laughs> an incredible means of grace. All these things, fellowship, prayer, Bible reading, fasting, you know, there's a multiplicity of these things. These are ways that we keep spiritual fervor in our life and make sure the fire is burning because we need to keep the fire burning ferociously. Because guess what? We have other fires inside of us that's also burning as well that seek to control us. The fires of lust and the fires of pride and all these things that are burning. And I promise you the answer is not to try to put out those fires. The answer is to actually light a bigger fire. The answer is not trying to put out the other fire because you can't. The answer is have a bigger fire in your life. So you study these, fire, these, these you know, fires that sometimes rage out in California and um, Australia. And oftentimes they're in dry areas and they don't have access to the water to put out these massive forest fires that are consuming what, tens of thousands of acres. There's not water. It's dry. So how firemen control these fires, they, they, they find out which way the wind is blowing and they will actually light another fire to control the fire that's out of control. Did you know this? They actually light other fires to burn toward and hedge in the fire that's out of control. So our answer so often is not spending an inordinate amount of time trying to quit lusting or, or quit coveting or quit lying or cheating. Maybe the problem is don't, don't, don't keep on trying to stop something. Try a different approach. Try starting something. Because maybe in starting something and stoking another fire, it's actually going to deal with the other fires. The enemy wants us to keep constantly focused on in the flesh trying to control our own things that are like out of control. God's like, no, no, listen, I've already put fire in you. The fire I put in you can actually quell and control and keep in check every other fire if you stoke that. So tending the fire, I really believe this, that, that love is the great conqueror of lust. It really is. The love of God in our heart, experiencing his love, the fire of God's love, right? The fiery seal that he puts upon our hearts, Song of Solomon 8, right? The fire of God inside of us will control any fire of lust. I tell guys and sometimes girls too that really struggle with lust and pornography and all these issues. Listen, dude, quit trying to stop do pornography. Just experience Jesus. Experience the fire of God. Experience his love in your life. And once you begin to taste that fire, it's going to ignite something in you that's going to actually deal with this area that's out of control in your life. Western therapy does not always help us in dealing with our issues. Because, you know, flesh doesn't win when it's fighting flesh. Flesh can't control flesh. It doesn't work well. It's like, you know, a kingdom divided against itself will not stand. Flesh is actually in alliance with each other. And the enemy loves to get us in that sort of loop. Because the truth is of the matter, when Jesus encounters us, Jesus is not after behavior modification. He's after transformation. Jesus did not come and just wants to modify my behavior. That can be done by sheer willpower. But he wants to transform me. He wants to make me into something new. He has made me something into something new. Does that make sense? 
So there are so many side benefits if we just cultivate our own spiritual life by appropriating the means of grace on a regular basis, we're going to find the other issues that we continually deal with really begin to diminish when we stoke this other fire. I promise it works. I may have shared this story before. I used to have a moderate addiction to Diet Coke. I really did. I liked Diet Coke. I, I, and I, I would drink two, three Diet Cokes a day. I just like Diet Cokes. Right? And, and I realized, I need to stop drinking Diet Cokes. So I, I tried to cut back. I'm not going to drink Diet Cokes. But the, but the more I tried to stop drinking Diet Cokes, the more I wanted Diet Cokes. Ever, ever thought about that? Lord, I don't want, I'm not going to drink it. But the more I tried not to drink it, the more I thought about drinking it, then I wanted to drink it more than I wanted to before I thought about not doing it. Do you follow that crazy logic? Who's been there, right? So then somebody told me, hey, quit Quit trying to stop drinking Diet Coke. Just stop trying to stop. Just, just up your intake of water by 100% and see what happens. So you're right. I quit trying to stop drinking Diet Cokes, and I started drinking way, way more water, and something began to happen. I just naturally stopped drinking as much Diet Coke because I increased my intake of water. That's the principle I'm talking about. The enemy wants to cause us to stumble over our own stuff constantly. But yet we have this God who promises us in Jude 24, now to him who is able to keep us from stumbling, right, if we really do it his way. So, man, start the fire. So we got we to gotta keep the fire burning. That's, that's, the, that's the main thing. The second thing is this. We got to keep the fire clean, now, when you read through this passage, the priests are not only having to keep the fire going, they're having to deal with the ashes. Who's ever had fire long enough, you know, what, what starts building up? Ashes, right? And if you don't deal with ashes, what's going to happen? The ashes are going to inhibit how well the fire is going to burn. So they have to get rid of the ashes because ashes keep a fire from burning cleanly. What do ashes come from? Ashes come from the stuff that will not be burned up completely by the fire. Because the fire burns a lot of it, but what won't burn is left behind. It won't be burned up. Ashes from a fire will not ascend upward, right? They will ascend upward some, but then what happens? They fall right back down. So there was something intentional about these priests that would get rid of the ashes, they would take them outside of the camp and they would discard them. We got ashes inside of us that we need to keep our fire clean. That, that, that the ashes in our fire basically comes from, you know, sin and, you know, selfishness and these things that as the fire is burning, it's going to expose ashes in us that we need to deal with. It's the, it's the dark corner principle. And when we see ashes, we want to get rid of them, and we want to get rid of them quick. We want to deal with areas that the Holy Spirit is convicting us about. Aren't you, aren't you grateful the Holy Spirit doesn't convict you about everything at the same time? Praise God, right? I mean, he's very gentle, and he will, you know, we're walking with him, and he generally says, hey, let's, you know, let's go after this thing. What should we do? I said, yes, Lord, let's do that. Let's get rid of these ashes. Let's get them out of the fire so the fire will continually burn clean. But over time, if you don't deal with the ashes, it's going to ultimately inhibit and destroy the fire inside of us. A fire will burn brightest and hottest when it's kept free from ashes. That's why when you see propane torches and all these things going on, I mean, it burns with extreme heat because there's no ashes around it, right? It's, just, it's burning this clean, 
rocket fuel and it's not dealing with the ash and it gets hotter and more powerful. See, God works in this principle. Hebrews 12, 28. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire, right? So God is fire inside of us. And when he burns, he wants to burn clean and he will clean us out in fire. Check this passage out. Deuteronomy chapter 9, verse 3. Know therefore today that this is the Lord your God who is crossing over before you as a consuming fire. Now understand the book of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy, which, which actually means the second law. So Moses now basically is repeating the entire law to the second generation of Israelites that came out of Egypt. Remember, they came out of Egypt. They went around the desert for nearly 40 years. That first generation died off. Now all that's left is the second generation. Moses is around 120. Joshua is around 80. They're of the first generation. So Moses is taking the time before he dies. He's going to communicate the entire law once again to the second generation that's going to go into the land. That's all the book of Deuteronomy is. It's a repeat of everything. He's going he's to represent everything because they need to hear it. And what he's saying to them is that God is crossing over before you as a consuming fire. He will destroy them and he will subdue them before you so that you may drive them out and destroy them quickly just as the Lord has spoken to you. So God is going before them and he tells them to destroy all of them when they cross over. I think it's kind of fascinating that God really creates the same thing for the second generation. See, the second generation didn't have the experience of going through the parted Red Sea. Because they weren't alive, most of them. But what they do? God parted the Jordan for them. So the second generation actually got to experience the same thing the first generation did. In a very powerful way. As they begin to move into the land. And God gave very specific instructions. And you know the story, right? Go in and possess the land. Kill everything. Don't take anything. But then we find out early on. Joshua chapter 7, this guy named Achan, who unfortunately liked bacon, right? He wasn't supposed to do things, right? He was supposed to, he was supposed to avoid that kind of stuff. But yet, what did he do? He stole some treasure. He came back. He hid in his tent. Caused all kind of problems because he compromised what God had called him to do. When you study the, 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 the acquisition of the promised land, we see something interesting happening because in the promised land, the ownership of the land of the people was eternal, but the possession of the land was conditional. If you know your Bible, think of that for a second. Ownership of the land was an eternal promise, but the actual possession of it was what? Conditional based on them following the instructions that God gave them. When they failed to follow the instructions that God gave them, and they would leave some of the ites in the land. Remember the ites, right? The Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Termites, the Backbites, and all, all, the, all, the, all the variety of ites that existed in the land that were part of the culture of Canaan. He said, you're going to have to deal with every single one of them. You, you can't let them stay. 
But every time they let them stay, it would create all kinds of problems, and it would inhibit them from possessing the land and coming into the fullness that everything God had provided. God already granted ownership. That was eternal. Possession was conditional based on their obedience to doing it his way. You checking? It's no different with us, isn't it? God's already given us ownership, right? He owns us. Our name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life. But if we don't obey him, the possession of this land, the fullness of the life of God is completely up to us. How much we tend the fire inside of us is completely up to us. How much we enjoy of him. It's not about ownership. It's about possession. I don't know about you, but I don't want to just have ownership. I want to possess my land. I know I'm going to heaven, but I don't want to just crawl into heaven, barely making it because I'm eating up with a bunch of ites. I want to, I want to walk into heaven being free. I want to walk in heaven. Somebody that the Son is set free is free indeed, walking in victory, not stumbling, full of the Holy Spirit, and doing that. Don't you want that? That's the testimony that, that we can have that Jesus died for us, not just to deliver us from something, but deliver us to something. And that's, that's, that's not just heaven. It's like victory in the here and now. And it can happen if we deal with the ashes in our life and we appropriate the means of grace. And when God convicts us of stuff, we lay it down. Is it hurt? Yes. Is it stuff that you like to do? Probably it is. But guess what? It's probably not good for you. How many of you like to eat a triple cheeseburger with lots of bacon and a large fry and a, a massive Coke? Praise God. I love it. That's my go-to. Spurge, right? Because listen, just because you like something doesn't mean it's good for you. Do you agree with that statement? In fact, I dare say many of the things that I like to do is not inherently good for me. I like to kick back in the recliner, pull off the blanket with a big bag of Doritos and, you know, binge watch Little House on the Prairie. No, I'm just right? Not really. But that's not good for me. What's better for me? I need to get up and do something. I need to move. So just because you like something doesn't mean it's necessarily good for you. Therefore, when God tells you to do something that you don't like to do, it's probably because he actually knows what's best for you. And it's actually going to bring more life and more victory and more peace and more love and more joy and more freedom if we just trust him. Because his ways are actually better than what we think. A way that seems right to us ultimately leads to death, doesn't it? We need to trust the Lord and deal with the ashes, and he's not trying to hurt us. Man, last thing, the third thing. We gotta keep it burning. We gotta keep it clean, deal with the ashes. The, the, the next thing we learn in Leviticus is we gotta keep the fire fresh. The fire was to be tended daily because the sacrifices were to be offered daily. And, and you find out when you can go back and look at Exodus 29, you find out that it's being done in the morning and in the evening. There was a litany of different sacrifices that were done in the morning and different sacrifices that were done in the evening. So the fire had to be done all day long. Leviticus 6.12 says the fire on the altar must be kept burning. It must not go out. Look at this. Every morning. Everybody say every morning. How many of you would say I am not a morning person? Anybody in the room? That you just know that's not a morning person. This is going to be a very hard verse for you, right? It says there's something powerful about how we start our day. Every morning the priest is to add firewood 
and arrange the burnt offering on the fire and burn the fat of the fellowship offerings on it. So we find out the first thing in the morning the priest had to do was had to get up early and do what? Put fire. Now, if you remember having wood-burning stoves when you were growing up, nobody liked that job. I never did it, but I read about people who didn't like it. I mean, they had to get up in the morning. It's cold outside. Go out and grab the wood, bring it in, open it up. I mean, that's not the funnest job in the world, but it was absolutely necessary to keep the house warm and be able to cook breakfast on it. So there's something about that's powerful in the morning. You've, we've got to get wood on our fire in the morning. You've got to do that. If you don't put wood on the fire in the morning, you are not going to start your day off very well. Because when you put fire, when you put wood on the fire in the morning, it's going to, it's going to tent, it's going to tent your entire day. So can I give you one of my like, one thing that I live by. This is one of my core values that I, maybe I hit about 80% of the time. I'm not hitting, I'm not batting a thousand, right? But I think I'm at maybe, you know, 75.89% on this one. I try to every morning put wood on the fire. And sometimes it's a log and sometimes it's a pine cone, right? Sometimes it's charcoal pre-lit with lighter fluid and sometimes it's just a twig. But even a twig is putting something on the fire. Get something on you in the morning that connects you with Jesus. You've, I mean, do that. In fact, when you talk about examining your life, do it this way. Define your Christian life. Examine your Christian life only in the context of a 24-hour day. Right? Never look beyond that. Don't skip a day. Just think about it every day. Give me this day my what? Daily bread. Don't let the sun go down on my anger. Next morning, early in the morning, my song shall rise to thee, the psalm says. So just every day, and I don't mean you got to get up and pop out of bed and just be like super Christian, you know, and go down and pray from 4 a.m. to 8 a.m. and intercessory moans of prayer and screaming to God in tongues and, and like read the, read the entire book of Judges before you go to work. Maybe, but you know, sometimes all you can do, right, is maybe while you're brushing your teeth, hit your little audio Bible and get through Proverbs chapter 2, Right? Still, man, cons the, the consistent habit of getting something on your fire every morning will do way more for you than trying to get four hours in one moment a month. You can survive physiologically by only eating at the Golden Corral once a week. That's true. You cannot eat all week long. But on Sunday at 1230, you can walk in the Golden Corral and you can light it up. And you can never eat again. You, you can survive, but you'll never thrive. You can survive that way. But we're not called to survive. We're actually called to thrive. So consistency is what you're after. What you're about keeping things fresh. Just every morning, don't let some awful expectation hit you that you can't do. Set something reasonable for yourself. Right? What's really sustainable? Ask the Lord, Lord, what's really sustainable for me? And we're all different, right? The problem is we're given to fads. I'm taking the 28-day challenge. I'm taking the South Beach challenge. I'm taking the Keto Frito Beto challenge. 
right? I'm going to do this, and I'm going to drop 40 pounds, and I'm going I'm to drop it. And you know, you're going to drop that 40 pounds in a month, and you're going to gain 80 back in the following six months. Right? So as you get older, at least I'm realizing this, everything I start now, I have in mind what's actually sustainable over the long term. Right? Don't initiate something that has emotional feelings attached to it that's so radical that the only way you can achieve it is through the arm of the flesh and your willpower because it's not sustainable. It's not done in grace. What can you reasonably do? And figure out, figure out what that is. Turn off WSB traffic in the morning and, you know, go to YouTube, type in audio Bible. The New King James Version has a tremendous audio Bible on there. It's kind of dramatized, different voices. And, and, and I, listen to God's word while you're driving to work, right? Just do something. And you're going to find it will really change everything. We like to talk about if you add two drops of green food color into the five-gallon bucket of water, it's going to tint every molecule of water green, it's amazing what God can do with the little we give him. I remember stories in the Bible of this kid with a few loaves and fishes, and God, like, fed thousands. He's, he takes what we bring him because he loves us so much. And his name is Mercy, and he's full of grace, and he knows we are frail and pathetic and weak. He knows that. Right? That's why he died on the cross. He, he already knows that. So he is ready to help us in our time of struggle. He really wants to do that, but we gotta like, we gotta like make the effort, don't we? Psalm 59, 16. But I will sing of your strength in the morning. I will sing of your love, for you're my fortress, my refuge in times of trouble. We need to keep spiritual fervor alive. Get up in the morning and sing. Listen, I promise you, nobody else may like your voice, but God does. I promise you. I got one of those voices. It's horrible. And you think, I sing bad. My wife, it's, it's, I mean, it's a new level of horrible, I'm telling you. Bless her heart. She's the most gifted woman I know. But when you stand next to her in worship, it takes everything to focus on Jesus because her voice is that bad. God bless her. It's true, but mine's not much, much better. But as, as much as, as, as horrible as her voice is, oh, Jesus just loves it. He, I said, how can you love that, Jesus? Oh, but I just love it. It's, I know it, it sounds right. I love it. Here, Jesus loves it when you sing to him. Jesus loves it. Get in the shower and sing and, and come up with something out of your spirit. Sing to the Lord. Open your mouth. Sing to him a new song. You can make up something, right? Just make it up, right? Let it rise out of you. It doesn't have to be a stoic exegesis of all the Greek words in Luke chapter 1. Maybe, but it may just be, Jesus loves me, this I know for the Bible. And just, just open your mouth. I promise you, when you draw near to God, he'll draw near to you. And your day will be so much better. Jude 20 says, but you, beloved, building yourself up in your most holy faith, prayed in the Holy Spirit, Verse 21 of Jude says, keep yourselves in the love of God. Romans 12 says, keep your spiritual fervor. Jude 21 says, keep yourself in the love of God. So whose responsibility is it again? Right, mine. I got to keep myself in the love of God, waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. He just told us in verse 20 how to keep ourselves in the love of God. He says, building yourself up in your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit. Right? 
praying in the Spirit helps you. In the Spirit, in uh, Holy Spirit-motivated prayers. How do you pray in the Holy Spirit? Well, part of that is speaking in tongues, but, it's, but it's, it's way more than that, right? It's praying the Word of God, praying the Psalms, praying what's on the heart of God, asking God, God, what's on your heart today to pray for? Has anybody been to that place where you try to keep your prayer list, and then your prayer list got so long you just, you just couldn't, it just got to be overwhelming? I did that one time. I said, I'm going to keep a prayer list. And, and I remember sitting down praying, and I had like 50 things on it. I said, oh, and I felt like such a, if I didn't get through all 50, I felt like a failure. You know, I stopped at, you know, 48, and, you know, here's 49's Aunt Gertrude's got a broken toe. And if I don't, like, pray for Aunt Gertrude, then her toe, I mean, just, you know. No, get free of all that, right? Get, get free of all that. Father, what's on your heart this morning? Lord, what are you, Father, what are you thinking about today? And I promise you, listen for a moment. A thought's going to cross your mind, and all of a sudden, it's going to be Joe in the cubicle across from you. It's going to be your son, or it's going to be your daughter. It's going to be your neighbor, you know. It's going to, God's going to, God's going to, God's going to tell you what's on his heart, you know, and then pray into that. Don't be obligated to pray for everything on your prayer list. That's not enjoyable prayer. That's like burdensome prayer. That's why, so praying in the Holy Spirit means the Holy Spirit is leading you and flowing through you. There's such an emphasis, there's such an emphasis on the Holy Spirit here. So the final thoughts here is this, that the, that the fire on the altar, the eternal flame of God, which sacrifices were offered to God, was to be tended with care. Other duties could be postponed. Other tasks could be deferred. But this was to be kept burning constantly. It was the number one priority of what they were called to do was keep the fire burning. This sacred fire where God's people offered their gifts, rededicated their lives constantly, was never to go out. So as we, so we kind of landed here, right? The self-examination, right? It's, Lord, how, how, is, how is the fire going, you know? How, what's the temperature inside of you? I mean, how are you, how are you doing, you know? How could your fire be hotter? It could, it could always be hotter, but honestly evaluate yourself. How's, how's the fire inside of you? And if it's not where you want it to be, then probably we're not appropriating the very means of grace that he's given us to keep the spiritual fire burning. We've been set free. I love the passage, Galatians 5. You know, Paul says it was for freedom that Christ has set you free. But now stand firm that you will not fall back into a yoke of slavery. So you see the dual aspect of that. Christ has set us free, but now it's up to me to stand firm, right? It's coming to terms with it's our, I have to take responsibility for my spiritual life. And in a lot of Western church culture, we've put the responsibility on the pastor on the leader, on the worship leader, on the guy teaching the Bible study, we've made him responsible for our spiritual life. And that's quite simply not what the Bible teaches. We're responsible for that. I am responsible for my children when they were little. I'm responsible for their education. They may go to public school, but it's not the teacher's responsibility for their education. It's still my responsibility, right? There's certain things in life we can't abrogate. And we can't abrogate our responsibility. And we can't shift blame on somebody else. We've got to take responsibility 
for our own spiritual fervor, appropriating the means of grace. And here's the good news. You're just not going to regret it. There's never going to be a moment in your life that you're going to say, man, I wish I hadn't have done that. That was a poor decision. That did not work out for my benefit. Because God always works for our benefit. Amen? We invite you to stand. Let's pray and then we'll be done. Thank you, Lord. Lord, even as I share this tonight, I, I, I stand before my family tonight, Lord, my brothers and sisters. Lord, not as one who has perfected any of this stuff. Lord, I am as much in, I'm as much in the audience tonight as anyone here, Lord. God, I feel the weightiness, God, of that, the responsibility of that, Lord. Lord, we want to be a diligent people. Lord, we live in a fallen world. We live in a dangerous world. Lord, deception, Lord, is on the rise. God, as we get further into the end times, Lord, you have warned us that the love of many would grow cold and false Christ would arise everywhere. And God, there would be strong, deluding spirits as the, as the spirit of the age, the spirit of Antichrist, God, begins to pervade and be perverse, God, in government and school and dead religion. Lord, it's, it's not to be trifled with, Lord. It's not to be casual. That, Lord, it is. You told us in 2 Timothy 3 that terrible times would come in the last days. That, God, we are not to fear these things. But, that, Lord, it should awaken a responsibility for our own heart and the care and the tender care of God, the fire in us. So I pray today, Lord, in these few words that we had tonight, that, God, you would reveal to us, make it practical for us. God, I pray, Lord, even as we get in the car to go home, Lord, let us not be so quick to turn the radio on to flip on the news, to get the updates on the impeachment hearings. God forbid, Lord, to just, Father, let's just, Lord, to take a moment, God, and just say, Lord, what does that mean? What does that mean, Lord, for me? Lord, how can I right now, God, on this very evening, as those priests did thousands of years ago, that, that, that added wood to the fire even in the evening, how can, I, how can I do that even tonight? Maybe it's just as simple. Lord, it's just reading a couple of verses before I, before I go to sleep. And that God, that we can wake up in the morning and just begin to add some things to the fire that you so graciously started in every one of us by the Holy Spirit. Lord, you did the impossible. You put the fire in us. And all you ask us to do, Lord, is to fuel the very fire that you started by your grace. So we love you. We confess to you, Lord. We need you, and we're so grateful for your, for your word. And I pray for a gift of spiritual hunger to arise in each and every one of us. There would be a dissatisfaction of the status quo. There would be a dissatisfaction of simply going to the motions. That, Lord, we would be a people who would be, just, have a, just have a, we would hate what you hate, Lord, and we would love what you love, God. We would, we would ask and, and seek and knock, and, Lord, we would be like that little widow woman just knocking on the door and, and God, we, we want to be a persistent people. God, bring that in our hearts that we in turn, Lord, can give you all the worship that you are so worthy of because we want to ascribe to you all the worth and offer our bodies as living sacrifices of you. It's worth it, Lord. It's so worth it that when we lose our life for your sake, we really find it. We find it, Lord. 
Paul understood it when he said we, we have nothing, yet we're making many rich. That in possessing nothing, we really possess everything. So, Father, thank you for the work in our hearts and our journeys with you. I pray your blessing upon your sons and daughters. That, God, as they leave here, there would not be a shred or an ounce of shame or condemnation. But that, God, only the gentle conviction and nudging of your Holy Spirit that's always operating in love, drawing us, inviting us deeper and deeper and deeper into all that you have. That on that glorious day, Lord, when we, when we stand before you, when all the wood and the hay and stubble burns up, that, Lord, on that day there would be gold and there would be silver and there would be bronze, those things of eternal value that we will be able to lay at your feet because you are so worth it, Jesus, because of, your, because of the blood and the cross. And as we sang, Lord, your blood does command all of our worship, Lord, and you are so worth it in the sweet and great name of Jesus. And all of us said, amen.